It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Scott and Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. He's Lauren. And he's Scott. Let's get into it. So we're discussing the movie Ben-Hur. Yes. Made in 1959, directed by William Wyler. Uh, It's number 100 on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list. Yes, indeed. Um, Before we get started, do we want to discuss uh, why we're going through the AFI Top 100? Yeah, I think think that's a good idea. Um, So the AFI is the American Film Institute, um, which was created through the National Endowment for the Arts and is associated with um, the Motion Picture Association of America and the Ford Foundation. Um, And basically, they put together a list of the top 100 uh, American films of all time. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. Fair enough. <laughs> I can jump in and say I know that they uh, every year they revote on these on this list, and so every year there's new movies being added. There's new movies uh, that are getting bumped off the list. There's 1,500 artists uh, who do the who vote on it. I'm not sure who they are or how you become one of those people, um, but I do know this is a constantly evolving list. That it doesn't just this isn't a list that was made in 1980, and so it's just a bunch of. Um, really old movies that nobody's ever heard of. These are movies that are some movies are relatively new, like this year, for the first time, uh, Fellowship of the Ring is on the list. Um, And yet there are certain movies that will almost probably never get bumped off the list. Like, number one, not to spoil it, um, will probably never ever get bumped off that list, I'm assuming. Um, But it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of people are filmmakers and, you know, various artists and stuff who are, you know, pretty big in the industry. So this is, it's a, it's a list of people made by people who, who know what they're talking about. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, it doesn't necessarily, um, part of what we're trying to do here with this podcast is, uh, you know, these are, these are movies that people who know movies Love, I think, is kind of the the concept, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they're the movies that most people have actually seen. Um, and so, I think part of what we're trying to do here is bridge that gap. What um, you know, what makes these movies the top one hundred movies according to the people who make movies? You know, why why do you need to know about these films? Right. Well, you know why. Why do people always talk about Citizen Kane? Why do people always quote The Godfather? You know, what is so special about these movies? Are, you know, and do they stand the test of time? Can a person who's not a uh, film school graduate or art school graduate or someone who works in the industry, can, someone, can one of those people appreciate one of the, some of these movies? Um, are they approachable? Are they, you know, are they worth your time? Exactly. So that's kind of what we're going to try to do here. Um, you know, Scott and I, we are both film school graduates. We both have worked on movies and television and internet videos and uh, kind of the, the gamut of, of uh, film and TV production. And uh, so we kind of have some inside knowledge. Um, and, uh, you know, most importantly, we both love movies. Yeah, and- that's what I was going to say. 
<laughs> while we have like a lot of knowledge, we love movies, and there are movies that we love that might not, will probably never be on this AFI Top 100 list. Um, but exactly, exactly. At the same time, a lot of these movies, I ha- I've seen a lot of these movies, but there's a lot, too, that I haven't seen, and I'm really excited to, because... I finally get an excuse to sit down and watch a hundred movies. Exactly. So uh, that's kind of our goal is to work through these, um, you know, one at a time. We're going to just kind of take them on and uh, we're going to kind of walk you through some of the history behind them and the reason that they exist and why they got on this list. And then at the end, uh, we're going to kind of sum it up and say whether we actually, you know, kind of make it practical, whether we enjoyed the movie. Cause I think there's a difference between, Maybe a movie being important for some reason and being enjoyable, and right. you know, and whether it's something maybe you should go out and try to see, or if uh, you know, maybe it's uh, just okay that you know about it. <laughs> right. Um, so we'll we'll kind of try to hit on some of that as well. If nothing else, this podcast can hopefully serve as a, as a Cliff Notes version of the movie, and you can listen to it and go, ah, now I can speak to this movie in a social setting. Exactly. Yeah, if you if you want to be someone who can get in and have that conversation without having to put in, you know, your well, in the case of the movie we're doing today, almost 4 hours uh, <laughs> yeah. of watching time, you know, you can uh, hopefully listen to our our 20-minute podcast, 30 minutes, whatever this ends up being. We've never done one before, so we'll find out what this edits to. But yeah. uh yeah, you know, hopefully we'll we'll figure it out. So, uh I guess with all of that said, maybe we should jump into today's movie. Yes, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, as you said, directed by William Wyler, based on Lou Wallace's book. Um, it was released in 1959. It was made for $15 million, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. and in 1959, that's a, a lot of money. That's, uh, I don't know what the exchange would be, but it's got to be you know, a, a couple hundred million today. Yeah, is my I, guess. Was, I was wondering, because like, I, I was doing some reading afterwards, and this is, this is like the avatar of 1959. This, at the time, this was the most expensive movie ever made. Mm-hmm. At $15 million, and it's like, nowadays, I, I don't know, but I feel like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was made for $15 million. It's like, dollars clearly went a lot further than they used to. <laughs> well, dollars yeah. used to go a lot further than they do now. Yeah, and, and to put it into perspective, it grossed $90 million in 1959. There are it's, movies today that don't gross $90 million. Or movies today, with the, when they gross $90 million, they are a Titanic failure. Exactly. It's the $90 million, they go, well, there goes that franchise. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it, it made a lot of money. This was definitely, you know, it's it's. I know it's not as big as Avatar when you work it out, but I mean, it's it's right. definitely in that in that genre. I mean, this was a huge international blockbuster when yeah. it came out. Um, yeah, and went on to win uh, 11 Academy Awards. Which um, is the most ever. Uh, which is, yeah. T- tied with Titanic and Return of the King. Right, but back in 1959, there was only 12 categories, as opposed to today when there's 24. So it actually ended up, you know, winning 99% of the Academy Awards that year. Exactly, exactly. Nothing has ever done that again. So that's a very impressive sort of feat. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's it. So it, had, it, it obviously made a lot of money when it came out. It was very popular when it came mm-hmm. out. It, uh, won a lot of awards when it came out. Uh, so what about the actual movie, Scott? I liked it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not, I'm not meaning to jump ahead, but, um, it's a really, really interesting movie. Um, 
for for so many reasons. It's like this to me is not the kind of movie that today would win Academy Awards unless it was I don't know like the Passion of the Christ or something because it is. Um, well, it, it starts off with uh, the first image you see is a close-up of the painting um, from the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out to Adam, you know, the, the creation moment. Mm-hmm. And you see that over the overture, and then you see it again over the, uh, the intermission overture. And, that, and then from there it goes into the very first scene is of Joseph and Mary in Jerusalem uh, looking for a place to stay. They know that they're passing through to Bethlehem. And I knew the subtitle was A Tale of the Christ, but I forgot how much Jesus and his life story was intertwined with uh, Judah Ben-Hur's. Um, and it's just, of course, the main character, Judah right, Ben-Hur. Played by Charlton Heston. And uh, so, the very, so the, that's the first scene. And the first sequence is literally just the birth of Jesus. You see the wise men, you see the star. Um, right from the very get-go, it sets itself off as a religiously-themed movie. And then it get, then it kind of jumps forward in time, and we pick up the story of Judah Ben Hur and his friend Masala. Judah uh, is a very rich man. He is they call him a prince of Jerusalem, which I think is really just an affectation. I don't think he actually is a prince because I don't think they had that kind of royalty at that time in Jerusalem. But they call him a prince of Jerusalem, and then you have Masala, who was his boyhood friend. Uh, who has gone on to become a Roman centurion, and they're coming back and they're getting reacquainted, and that's what starts the whole story and the whole movie, and it's really these two men, and eventually it kind of devolves into kind of a uh, a revenge tale where uh, Ben-Hur has been uh, wrongfully accused of something, and he gets sent away, and he goes, and he works in the gallows of a ship for, like, three years, and then he comes back to Jerusalem, and he's constantly, he's looking for revenge, and that's basically the story. It's like the fall of this one family, and the possible redemption of this character, and maybe the, reven- maybe the revenge he gets, or maybe the salvation he receives... And uh, it's a sprawling three-and-a-half-hour movie. And it goes from the streets of Jerusalem to Rome to huge naval battles to the chariot race that everybody is familiar with, probably. At least, they at least have that image. I think that's probably the image of Ben-Hur people have, is Charlton Heston behind that. Uh, behind the chariot. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a huge movie. And, and it's very interesting, uh, I think, how the... Um, the story really does follow, you know, the two men, uh, specifically Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur. Um, yeah. But it, it is kind of their intertwined lives and how that kind of reflects the um, the politics of the time as well that was going on mm-hmm. between, you know, this, uh, the the Israel, the occupied state of Israel with the, the Roman invaders and kind of the... Yeah, they the, definitely... The they fragile definitely, peace that was there or, or however you want to look at it. Um, no. Yeah, they definitely play Israel and Jerusalem as the, as occupied territory. It was very interesting, I thought, because I felt like they would play it exactly the same way today with the military and political situation we're in right now. Yeah, it it, it definitely the um, you know it felt very current to me the the politics mm-hmm. of it, and it you know it felt like um, you know since it is set in the Middle East, it it really felt like. Um, you know, just things really haven't changed that much <laughs> no, you know, in 2,000 years. So that's uh, that's kind of a very uh, fascinating aspect of it to me as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but, but the two of them meet, and 
end up uh, there's an accident that almost murders the new commanding officer who's right. coming in to uh, to rule Jerusalem uh, the, for the Romans, and uh, basically Ben Hur takes the rap for it, uh, saving some other people. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of where the big rift begins. Um, right, and there, you can already tell that there is some uh, that that accident is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back because mm-hmm. you they come back together, and it's clear that there's a little bit of unresolved tension from their childhood. You know, mm-hmm. they, it, they clearly had some form of argument when they split, mm-hmm. and then when Masala comes back, he wants Ben Hur to be like a spy for him. He says, you know, there are people here in Jerusalem who don't like us, and if you could tell me who that is, mm-hmm. that would be fantastic. And Ben Hur's like, I can't do that. They they love me here. They they trust me. I'm I'm a prince of Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be the mouthpiece for Rome here. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm so representing they, my people, not not yours. Yeah, and so then when this accident takes place, um, Masala really sees it as an opportunity. It's kind of twofold for him. He has this moment to get revenge on this man who has uh, offended him, but also he's able to make him an example to the rest of Jerusalem that uh, even my friends are not safe. You cannot, you know, you cannot defy the the Roman law here and get away with it. I will end you, basically. And so he takes that opportunity to send Ben Hur off uh, to be a slave. Yeah, and which is interesting. Uh, he in, in the movie he goes and becomes a galley slave on board a Roman ship, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the few historical inaccuracies. The Romans didn't actually use uh, galley oh, really? slaves. Yeah. But um, it, it makes for some exciting uh, sequences in the yeah, movie. So. It's, a, it's a great sequence. Because um, it's, it's so interesting. He gets on the ship, he, get, he goes down to the galley, and he's rowing. And then I don't know how they cover the time lapse, except to say you know, a commander boards the ship, and he goes, you, and he points at Ben-Hur and goes, you've been here for three years. Mm-hmm. And you're like, he's been down there for three years? Holy cow. Yeah, it, it, but it works really well. I mean, it, oh, it, like, it's fantastic. Like you do get this, the sense of, you know, he's been a slave for a very long time. and Yeah, and, like uh, his beard has grown out. He definitely looks like a harder, disheveled man than he was, you know, a few minutes ago. And, uh, of course, it's on this ship that the first major action sequence of the mm-hmm. movie uh, occurs. Um and you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, this is like seventy minutes into the movie. So, um, right. <laughs> it's, if we didn't mention it, it's a really, really long movie. It's got you know overtures and intermissions. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it has an intermission. Yeah. I love the. I really want the intermission to come back. I know it maybe doesn't make financial sense to the box office, but I would love for the intermission to come back. I would love for Peter Jackson to be re- able to release The Hobbit as one giant opus that I take a break, you know, halfway through. Mm-hmm. Go get food, go to the bathroom, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So Sneak out in the hallway and then go back in. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, but this is definitely a huge movie. So there's this huge action sequence that happens at sea um, as the Roman ships get attacked. Um, and it's, it's a pretty massive naval battle. And during it all, um, of course, Ben-Hur saves the life of... Uh, the Roman commanding officer um, is kind of the upshot of it all. But uh, let's actually talk about the sequence a little bit, because this is, again, yes. it's, it's the first major action sequence in yeah. the movie. I think it's definitely worth talking about, because it's a fantastic sequence. 
Um, I for- watching it, I forgot that this is the movie that I quote all the time when I yell "ramming speed." Um, exactly. It's like it's the, it's that tone because there's, there's that drummer down down in the galley, you know, beating out the time of the oars. Exactly, the and-, and it's a really thrilling sequence. But mm-hmm. I do have to say, I feel like this is the only sequence. This is the only time in the movie where the budget kind of shows, or the fact that. Maybe the time I, in which it was made kind of shows. Yeah, I was gonna say I wouldn't necessarily blame it on the budget. I would say it's 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 this is one of the few sections that shows its age is really okay. kind That's, of what I would say. Yeah, yeah I think I think yeah. today we're we're used to these big special effects. Yeah. Um everything is, is hyper realistic today. Yeah. And um, you know, this is nineteen fifty nine. They don't have computers, they're using model ships and right. painted backdrops and exactly. a wave this, pool to create the giant epic battle. Yeah. I was gonna say, you know, that being said, considering the fact that we see Jerusalem and we spend a lot of time there, we spend mm-hmm. some time in Rome, we spend some time in the uh, Colosseum, mm-hmm. the fact that there's o- this is the only time in the movie where I kind of giggled, mm-hmm. I this, think is very impressive. Yeah, it's out very of, cool. Out of four and a half hour or, or three and a half hours, this is the only <laughs> part where the special effects really show. Yeah, and it's only their if, it's really only in the wide shots. Like when you get in close and you're on the deck. It's great. You know, you're having the this fight between the Romans and... Are they pirates? Are they... I forgot what they were. Are they the Greeks? Who are they fighting? Goodness, I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, it's... Uh, it's some enemy of Rome. I don't remember exactly who it so was. So they're fighting now. Blackbeard. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you can't complain about the, the, the fighting or the action sequence. It's when they pull out and you mm-hmm. see kind of what you just described. It's clear that they had to shoot this in a, a wave pool or some mm-hmm. form of... Um, set somewhere mm-hmm. um, and you see these little kind of uh, models uh, mm-hmm. of the different ships and you see that what really kind of shows it is they have this weapon I guess it's Greek fire or some mm-hmm. some form of that where it's this, these flaming balls that they hurl when you see the men loading the weapons it looks very cool mm-hmm. but then they pull out wide and it looks like they're shooting Roman candles at each other like fireworks it's mm-hmm. like oh that's not very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, that said, it's still an impressive sequence because there aren't that many of these wide shots. No. And when you come in again and get into the action and you're you're following uh, you know, Charlton Heston through it and and everything, it's 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 still a very thrilling sequence. It's mm-hmm. um I think I think that speaks to the quality of this movie is that despite the age of this particular sequence, it still really manages to hold you into the story. Oh, absolutely! And uh, and it's still a fascinating. Well, because um, I, for me too, as uh, as a storyteller, this is where the first real um, interesting character decision gets made, mm-hmm. where um, the all the slaves are chained in at the bottom of the galley. But then the commander has Ben Hur unchained, mm-hmm. you know, because he realizes that Ben Hur is a a good person, mm-hmm. and it he doesn't they don't say it, and it's not something. There's no dialogue necessarily, except for you know, oh, unchain him, mm-hmm. and Ben Hur is really confused. But that's the beginning of the a very major theme of this movie, mm-hmm. which I think is you know is grace and forgiveness and you know some of these other things. Exactly. But you see that, and you go, whoa, that's really interesting. This is coming from this Roman who. Ben Hur doesn't know, other than being his slave taskmaster mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, they've um, had a couple of interactions, but it's, right. it's never really been, um, you know. And so much of so much of this particular sequence, especially, is is done in subtext. It's amazing yeah. Yeah, how much yeah. is conveyed without words or without spelling it out, um, which is 
to me, that is a huge, um, a huge thing that I will probably touch on as we get into more movies and stuff. How many of these movies on the top 100 list have this fantastic way of showing rather than making the, the people say something? Right. Because um, you, you definitely, from those few interactions he has with the Taskmaster, you definitely get this impression that he has impressed the Taskmaster. He kinda, you can see it without, them, without him actually going, hey, Judah, you're a good guy. I'm going to trust you. He doesn't have to say it. You mm-hmm. get that impression. So when it happens, it's both surprising yet consistent with the story that we've been presented it's completely so Completely believable when it does happen. Right. But even as it's happening, you're not sure which way it's going to go. You know, is right. he going to kill him? Is he going to let him live? You know, it's it's a very it's a it's a fantastic moment inside mm-hmm. this action sequence. So mm-hmm. um, so yeah. yeah. The, and then the the ship gets sunk, and uh, but before it actually sinks, we see. Uh, the Taskmaster, I, do, I guess that's what we call him, he gets, uh, he gets knocked overboard and Ben-Hur jumps in the water after him and pulls him up onto a piece of driftwood. And from their vantage point, they see the ship sink and then they're lost at sea for a period of time. Yeah, and we don't know how long they are, but it's obviously it's, yeah, quite uh, a while. Maybe he's a centurion. Maybe, or maybe he's not a Taskmaster because he takes responsibility for the ship sinking and he thinks the battle has been lost and so he tries to kill himself and uh, Ben-Hur will not let him. He, you know, saves his life but then also prevents him from killing himself. Mm-hmm. And then they are eventually found by the Roman fleet and they find out that they actually won that battle. Mm-hmm. It's just that one particular ship was lost. Um, they get, Ben-Hur gets to go to Rome where he meets... Uh, he, does he meet Caesar? Is that he, who that was? Yeah, he meets Caesar, um, and and he also... Um, um, he, he's adopted by this, uh, right. this Roman. Right. Um, That's right. He becomes a Roman citizen, which I thought was really interesting. So he's, because he's, he's gone from the worst possible situation to being someone of high stature and, and at, nobility. Yeah. Again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he goes back to that, and, you know, knowing the little bit I know about Roman society, I mean, it allows him to do a lot of things now. It allows certain things to not, that protects him from a lot of things at mm-hmm. this point. He's even now, and it comes up in the movie, as soon as he gets adopted, he actually becomes a higher ranking Roman than Masala himself, mm-hmm. who just enslaved him. So all of a sudden, through through being nice and not through revenge, he gets promoted in, up in the world. He get, He's, you know, more, he's unintentionally failing upwards. Um, but not failing might be a strong word because he's actually being the kind of person we should probably be. Exactly. And of course the, uh, a driving motivation for him during all of this is that his family, his, his mother and his sister, um, were kid, well, jailed at the time that he was sold into slavery. And he right. doesn't, you know, he hasn't heard a word about them in, you know, all of these years. And so, right. so yeah, the first chance he gets, he tries to head back to Jerusalem to try to find and save his uh, family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's on that trip back to Jerusalem that he meets Gimli. <laughs> he does. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's basically John Riss Davies only it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, if they made this movie today, that would be John Rhys Davies. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, this of course, uh, obviously several, several elements happen during this, but, um, you know, uh, it, it's at this point that we get into the world of chariot racing. Yes. Um, which is a pretty major, uh, well, obviously it's the chariot racing that everyone remembers. Uh, right. There's there's been some slight foreshadowing with uh, 
uh, Judah giving uh, Masala a horse at the beginning, which I think is one of the horses Masala uses in the chariot race. Mm-hmm. You see these little moments, but then, yeah, he meets this man um, out in the desert and really is shown how to chariot race, is mm-hmm. shown these things. Um, and and it's it seems a very... Um a therapeutic thing in some ways for Ben-Hur's character, but it's also he realizes that this is his way to, to revenge somewhat. He's, he's not interested in being the driver for this, uh, Arab, uh, racing, uh, uh, owner basically. Yeah. Um, you know, the man owns a team, but he, he doesn't have a good driver for it. And, uh, 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 Ben-Hur had done some racing back in Rome during, Mm -hmm. during, this period when he had been adopted, obviously several years have, have passed during this point, and, and it was things that we didn't know about. And yeah. uh, But he's not interested in racing for this uh, sheik until he finds out that Masala will also be racing. Right. And, uh, and of course, this is, this is his opportunity uh, to face down uh, his once friend who has now become his enemy. Yes. Um, and... Yeah. So he takes that opportunity to learn everything he can so that he can go to the Colosseum in Jerusalem. It's not the Colosseum, it's a you know, racetrack in Jerusalem, and face down Masala and beat him and possibly kill him in the race. Mm-hmm. It's a very brutal, uh, bloody race. It's oh, not just- as, as I believe the Sheik says something like, you know, lots of men die in the arena or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so this is... Uh, this leads us up uh, to the intermission, basically. is, is <laughs> We're getting ready to head to the huge race. So this is the first two hours of the movie, you know, hour yeah. and a half, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been a fantastic uh, 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 movie up to this point. And, Definitely. And it's, it's been a very interesting and very strong character mm-hmm. piece, you know, for people who, who like movies that are... Um, uh, led by character decisions, mm-hmm. not necessarily like events. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been a very strong character piece up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say it devolves from here, but it's like it's been very interesting. It's a slower, quieter movie than maybe um, people are used to, but it, it's been very fascinating to see these characters mm-hmm. and yeah, how they behave. It's definitely a slower paced film than anything you would see today. Yeah. Um, you know, it, uh, conversations that people have are. Uh, allowed to kind of sprawl out a little bit. They they say more. There's there's more music under them speaking, and and it's it's very theatrical. Very theatrical. Anybody who likes a good theater play mm-hmm. will enjoy this because they, even the way they film certain scenes and they light certain scenes, it doesn't necessarily feel cinematic in as much as it feels like theater. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing because they're such strong actors. Mm-hmm. Exactly, but. Uh, if, if there is one other area of this film that does show its age, it is some of the, uh, I would say especially the love scenes, Yes, um, probably show their age the most, because it's very, um, you know... Uh, it's that stylized acting where, like, the women will turn abruptly and... And not the look at the come, man. And, yeah, and the man will come up behind the woman and put his hands on her shoulders, and that's, like, the greatest gesture of love <laughs> exactly uh so very theatrical uh but it's not it's not bad or anything it's just a, a complete, so. it's, it's a it's a completely different style than you would see in a movie today yeah. so that's that is maybe the other uh the other sign of aging that this movie has other okay. than the sea yeah. battle is what i, I would, would definitely say. agree with that yeah but 
totally worth it uh, for the character development mm-hmm. uh, and to get to to some of the scenes uh, specifically that we are about to hit now. Yes. As we, uh, if you're watching this on on the DVD, you're hitting uh, the second disc. It's mm-hmm. it's right after the, the overture. <laughs> That's right. And and here you are. The overture plays. It's it's fantastic music, mm-hmm. and you hit the chariot sequence. I've, and this to me is so interesting because I feel like today the chariot sequence, they would find a way to tell the story where the chariot sequence is the climax of the film. Mm-hmm. Because, Be- because it's a 20-minute action sequence. Yeah. It, um, it, it Honestly, you could make an entire movie yes. out of the chariot sequence. Absolutely. There's so much going on that you could make an entire movie, a 90-minute movie, based on all of the things that have come together to make this sequence in this movie. And it is so gorgeous. I mean, it is not hokey. I mean, this. I mean, if if for no other reason, you have to watch this movie just to see the chariot race. If you haven't, if you're like, oh no, I get it. No, no, you have to watch this because I don't think they would make them it any differently today. I mean, there's no trick. There's no weird speeds of the camera. There's no weird edits. It's everything in this uh, t- today. Uh, you know, everything is computers and yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, digital tricks and. That is not the case in this chariot race. It is live horses, live chariots, live drivers, mm-hmm. live people sitting in the stands. Uh, you know, I'm sure they threw a few dummies in there to, to pat it out, to fill it out. Yeah. But it's you know, it's a real dummy sitting in the in the crowd uh, yeah. watching and, this thing. And there's these; they have these fantastic dummies that they drive over. That they that they use as these victims who fall off their chariots, or these guards who get knocked out of get knocked out of place. That they and then they they get trampled by the horses and run over by the chariots. And it's so startling because it looks so real. Exactly it's like, because it's it's not you know trick photography. It's not cutting in close on you know somebody getting crunched by a horse's foot or something. It's just it's. It's almost like you were watching this on TV or... Yeah, uh, you that, know, it, yeah, very much so. It's like you were there and like, oh, oh! Mm-hmm. Like Kelly and I both, we kind of jumped a couple times where all of a sudden a guy falls off his horse and we're like, oh no! And then we see him get hit and the way the body tumbles, you just go, oh, he is going to be hurt in the morning if he survived that at all. And it's just, it's fantastic filmmaking. And it's, it's told up to this point, there's been uh, a score. There's been a lot of music in the movie. They drop it completely. And all you hear is the, the pounding of hooves, the shouting of the men, the cheering of the crowd. And you get into it. I mean, you can't help, but just like get into this chariot race. It is, it is truly some of the most electrifying 20 minutes of film watching that you will ever see. Yeah. Um, and all the more so if you have definitely watched the movie up to this point, because there is so yes. much character development that is coming out yes. during this sequence. Um, you know, There's so the, much unspoken. The, the uh, battle between Masala and, and, yes. and her is, is amazing. It is. And especially when you, when you understand how, where they're coming from. Yeah. And see where they're headed and how they, how they, their personal lives have been clashing. And now, and the way Masala drives his cart, I mean, it's like he is, He's, I don't know if it's cheating because nobody says anything, but I mean, he has his whip and he'll turn his whip on mm-hmm. other drivers. He has these uh, spikes on his wheels that he uses to grind up other people's chariot wheels. And he is out for blood. He wants to win and he doesn't mind people dying mm-hmm. for him to win. Exactly. 
and uh, you know, and and Ben Hur has a different style where he is definitely driving much more defensively, especially towards mm-hmm. the beginning of the race. Yeah, um, you know, he's not cheating. He's he's definitely um, participating in the spirit of the event, even though he has this other reason for wanting to be there. Right. And uh, and again, I think that kind of plays into the grace and everything of it is that you know at the end he is triumphant. I don't think we're spoiling much by saying that. No. Um, but he does it in the right way. And I and think that's a, that's a very important element of what this film is, is trying yes, to say. Yes, I would definitely say so. And to me, this leads us to the most shocking part of the movie, at least for me, was it wasn't that Ben-Hur won the race. It was that he won the race and in his winning, uh, spoiler alert, Masala dies. Exactly. And, and so you have this three-and-a-half-hour movie that two-and-a-half hours in, the antagonist is dead. <laughs> After You know, you're, you're there, and there's still an additional... I mean, I clocked it. I think there was an additional 45 minutes or more... To the movie. To the movie, and you kind of have this resolution of this conflict that started the movie. And so you go, oh, well then, what's this movie about if it's not about Ben-Hur versus Masala? It's it's definitely not a traditional structure of a story as it would be told today. Uh, you know, we definitely, um, you know, we have the the Robert McKee school of of film writing today, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's very three act structure. Very, um, you know, you have to have your characters have these kind of arcs and and have everything, you know, very structured, and 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 it works. I mean, that's why our movies are the way they are today because it, it definitely works. But I would say that Ben-Hur breaks a lot of the rules. I mean, it, it Oh, it absolutely does. It, uh, it, it might be the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's like I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to try to do this, but if you have the right story, it's, you it's, can absolutely, you can do whatever you want. Exactly. Because it turns out that the story is, is really the king and, uh, uh you know, break the rules. If it's, if, it, if you're doing it, again, for the right reasons. Um, so, if this movie's not about revenge, or mm-hmm. if, if it's not about Ben-Hur killing Masala, what is this movie about? Because we still have another 45 minutes. Well, and, and ultimately, I think it goes back to the title of the movie, which is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. Mm. And it really is, um, despite all that has gone on in this, it really is um, the story of been her finding faith. Yep. Um, and uh, he goes through this entire journey um, in order to find it. Um, something we haven't touched on yet is that all through the movie, it, you know, we, we said at the beginning, you see the... Uh, Are we talking about my favorite reoccurring character? <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, starting at the beginning, you see the, the nativity story, um, you know, the, the barn and Mary and three, Joseph, three, three wise men. men. Um and all through the movie, you've had a couple of recurring characters, um, one of which is uh, one of the wise men. Which is absolutely my favorite. Having, you know, having grown up a Christian, I've seen a lot of Christian dramas. I've seen a lot of, uh, I've heard a lot of stories like, you know, what if uh, Barabbas actually went and did this afterwards? I absolutely loved, I'd never seen this, and I've seen Ben-Hur, but I had forgotten about this character. I'd, I've never seen anywhere else this idea that one of the wise men um, basically then devoted his life to following Jesus after seeing him in the stable. And so 
at that age of 30, when Jesus goes and kind of commits himself to the ministry, and when Ben-Hur's story starts, he runs into one of these wise men who goes, I've been following this lad since he was a boy, and now his great work is about to begin, and he becomes this character that Ben-Hur or Ben-Hur's sister uh, continually run into. Yeah, he, he pops up several times and keeps pointing uh, different characters back towards the Jesus character, who yeah. is the second recurring character and the, uh, in this film. <laughs> yeah, and portrayed so uniquely. Mm-hmm. You never see his face. It's always... Never um, see his face. You'll see his back, you'll see his feet, you'll see his hands. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time it bothered me was at um, the Sermon on the Mount, because it was such a prolonged shot. Yes. Because like the first time it happens, it's almost chilling. The, mm-hmm. the, the scene where, there's a scene very early on after Ben-Hur has been committed to be a slave, that they're wandering through the desert and they come, up pro- come across a carpenter's shop where they stop to get water, and it happens to be Joseph's shop. And Jesus comes out and gives the slaves water, and it's—I mean, from a from a religious standpoint, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, sentiment. But then also, just the way that scene unfolds is—it's chilling. It's just shot so wonderfully. Yeah, and the way it affects Jesus's presence in yeah. this scene affects the soldiers. It affects Ben Hur in a certain way. You know, it's just—it's a very well done scene. And um, then you go to the Sermon on the Mount, which. I love the idea of Ben-Hur just walking away from it. Like, mm-hmm. all these people are flooding to this mountain to hear this, and the, the wise man is there, and the girl he's with goes to follow the people, and Ben-Hur goes, mm, no, and walks away. <laughs> and I love that. But then they cut to this real, this very long, single-take shot where you see the back of Jesus for, it felt like um, two or three minutes. It was probably only 30 seconds. But it was just such a long, labored shot that I wanted... I wanted them to cut to other things, and it just mm-hmm. felt kind of weird and kind of calling out to the fact that, look, like, look we're not going to show you who this guy is. We want you to make up your mind on who Jesus was, which is also, we should go ahead and just talk about Jesus for a second, because, you know, obviously he's a very polarizing figure in the world. Uh, right. You know, and, always, but, you know, especially right. today. But let's, uh, speaking specifically as to how he is portrayed in this movie, I felt like there were two things going on in this movie. One is um, the filmmakers, and I happen to know that William Wyler, the director, was Jewish, um, but he kind of very clearly makes the decision, I am not going to show his face, and I believe that has to come from a place of, I want you to decide who he was. I want you to decide um, who he is today, or what what he looked like, or whatever. And that actually, it it does come... um it actually even comes from Lou Wallace, who wrote the original book. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, there had been several productions on the stage. There, had, there was an earlier 1920s production of the film, uh, as a film version of Ben-Hur. Uh, they had all, all been incredibly popular. Um, yeah, and they, and they never showed Jesus, they, ne- they never portrayed him as a, as a character or a person. Exactly, because uh, it was, it was uh, the author's uh, wish that people not see his face because he didn't really think an actor could ever do justice um, and that it would, it would, people needed to draw their own conclusions. Right, right. So you have that, but then you also have the very, I feel, the very clear message that Jesus was divinely the son of God. 
which yeah. I thought was kind of an interesting. Uh, it felt like almost like two opposing forces at times, where it's like we're not going to show you who this guy was, but in the world of Ben Hur, he is the Son of God mm-hmm. who redeems man, and and that know. and that is at least how Ben Hur is going to experience him. You know whether yes. whether or not that's that's you know the case is this is how he is going to experience this character. Right, right. That's I think that's definitely mm-hmm. how he's portrayed in the movie mm-hmm. with. Um, whether, you know, between every time he shows up, the, the music changes to this big choir kind of singing behind mm-hmm. him. Um, and then at the very end, um, his death actually heals uh, exactly. and Ben-Hur's family of ex- their leprosy. Exactly. Because, of course, while in captivity, um, Ben-Hur's sister and mother had both contracted leprosy and uh, had, you know, gone, had been exiled and uh, Ben Hur is trying to find a way to save them, and ultimately takes them in to meet Jesus because he's heard that this is a man who can do miracles. And it's and the, wouldn't you know the day he takes him in is the day Jesus is being crucified. Exactly, and and it's kind of portrayed as as Jesus's final miracle in some ways uh, mm-hmm. of his ministry that he heals in yep. his death. He ends up healing um, Ben Hur's mother and sister of their leprosy. Right. Um, and that's that's kind of how it's portrayed, and, uh, and it, it's kind of a, it's and it happens kind of strangely. It's like it mm-hmm. doesn't happen in a way that Jesus doesn't touch them. He never speaks to mm-hmm. them. Um, they they follow him carrying the cross. They see him crucified, and in a wonderful moment, Ben Hur gets to give Jesus some water, right? Um, which is kind of a, a you know a direct opposite of the scene much earlier on when Jesus had given him water. Yeah, there's definitely a moment where you kind of you. It feels like the movie's going to go to this place where he's the one who carries Jesus' cross for mm-hmm. him, but they don't change you know history and they just kind of make him this uh, observer. And yes, he offers Jesus water. Um, the, the, I have to say, as a viewer, mm-hmm. once we got to the crucifixion, I felt <laughs> I felt like Jesus' story hijacked the movie a little bit. It's I, you know, I, I would tend to agree with that, um, and it's it's a very interesting place in the movie because it it it, it shouldn't have because we should have been expecting it from the very beginning since the movie starts at the nativity. Right, and it's called A Tale of the Christ. And it's but, called A Tale of the Christ, and the whole journey is Ben-Hur's journey to finding this Jesus man. Um, and it still does feel like it hijacks the movie just a little bit. Yeah, and maybe it's just because like you don't hear, I mean, you never see Jesus' face. He's not, so he's not, and he never really speaks. You hear him a little bit at the the Sermon on the Mount, you hear a little bit of that, but I think really you only hear that afterwards where people are talking about it and they're quoting him very directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not really an active character in the traditional sense of a character in a movie. And then all of a sudden he becomes the major person of act three in this movie. And so it's, it's really interesting to see Ben Hur go to supporting in a supporting character role almost mm-hmm. for about 15 minutes until Jesus dies. And it doesn't go into the the resurrection and you don't follow Jesus' story any further after Right, it goes right back to, to Ben Hur and it kind it of goes the, back the fallout to ben- for his family. Yeah, but then but then like really after the crucifixion, that's it really goes straight into the Denouement almost. So mm-hmm. just like, okay, now we're gonna wrap this up because uh 
everybody's alive, everybody's happy, they're all back to, you know, a good place, everyone has found each other, right. and, uh, you know, the end. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. basically Yeah, and it, it, it's really, to me, it, it was really a fascinating ending because it's so, it's not out of left field, it's not unexpected, but yet it is surprising. You go, oh, wow. And it's, it's not even unsatisfactory or anything. It, no, you know, no. It, it really does wrap up in a way that you're like, you know, everyone's, everyone's story is satisfactorily ended in the kind of the way you want it to be. Yeah. It's just not at all where you really were expecting the movie to go. Yes. I think. Um, but that's part of why it's such an interesting indie, I think. I, and yeah. And it's so interesting. It's interesting to me because again, it, ma- it makes Ben Hur this observer as opposed to a, someone who's actively involved. I mean, he is there to give Jesus water, but I almost, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, if it, in another version of the script that you could have made Ben Hur the one of the thieves on the cross. Which I know that's a, a weird place to take it, but that almost feels like the the natural flow of where it might go today. Where we go, hey, we need to involve this. We want to bring Jesus back into it. What if he's that good thief that Jesus forgives, and so he ultimately dies for his sinful life, but also gets forgiveness. It's it was weird to me, kind of going, oh, and then. More or less, Ben Hur does convert. It seems they, they're they're not very on the nose about it. Mm-hmm. But to me, I definitely kind of got the impression that um, from this day forward, we would consider Ben Hur a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of play it, and I think it's probably due to the time that this movie came out. They definitely play his new look outlook on life as a uh, a love for all men. Like you know, I, we should treat everybody the same, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a brotherhood of earth <laughs> um as opposed to oh i'm going to go tell people about jesus now i'm going to go do this and right um, but yeah very very interesting all right well and that is the movie uh kind of in a, a large nutshell but um <laughs> yes. uh, you know there's there's no way really to talk about this massive of a film without taking some serious time to do it mm-hmm. um uh yeah so i mean at the end um, kind of what what would you say to people uh, at the end of, of watching this and discussing it, Scott? Um, people should see it. I think you, I think if you are a, a lover of movies, if you are uh, somebody who enjoys old movies, new movies, current movies, if you're just like somebody who just enjoys sitting down at the end of the, your day of work or on a Saturday night and popping in a movie, this is well worth your time. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say run out to Best Buy and buy it today. Um, because you might kind of go, oh, this is a much slower movie, or it might not be one you need to watch once a year. But it's definitely, it's definitely worth trying to find on Netflix or at your local movie gallery or whatever you have. Because um, there's, there's one thing that we didn't touch on that I, I want to touch on as, yeah. as part of this. Is, and going back to the chariot race, watching it, I'm a huge nerd. And I couldn't help but realize, and I went back and I watched it, that George Lucas clearly loves this chariot race as much as <laughs> you and I do. Because uh, if you remember the pod race from Star Wars Episode One, mm-hmm. it is it is almost completely a remake of the chariot race, um, down to like the the craziest small degree of the whole chari- The whole pod race is done silently. There's no music in the pod race until the, the final lap. Um, you have uh, Anakin versus Sebulba in the same way you have uh, Ben-Hur versus Masala. Sebulba, just like Masala, cheats. 
Saboba mm-hmm. is willing to kill the other uh, drivers. At one point, both uh, Ben Hur and Anakin are launched into the sky, and uh, it's it's really interesting to see that. And even the in Ben Hur, they have these little golden fish that they flip over for every uh, lap completed. In Star Wars, they have these cylindrical cylinders that light up. That I mean, everything is just like wow. I mean, so it's clearly a movie that is affecting movies today. Filmmakers today are still looking at this and drawing inspiration from it, which I think is, if nothing else, a sign that this is something that you too should probably check out. Sure. You know, I'm sure that you, you don't get into, uh, you know, Ridley Scott making, uh, you know, uh, gladiator or something without at least referencing this movie. Right. Briefly in his preparation for it. Right. Right. uh, It's, it is definitely, one of the keystone films of you know the Roman era, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely, um, definitely hugely influential. I would say on on filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, well in, into today, even you know it definitely does. The other thing I would say, <laughs> sorry, I know, I'm not trying to uh, hijack this uh, podcast, but uh, at some point I want to come back and discuss uh, movie remakes. Mm-hmm. And that's a subject that would be, I think, would be great for an entire single episode of a podcast. And not this isn't the time and place to do it. But to me, this is the kind of remake that should be made. Because this this is the first remake to ever win the Oscar. And it is a remake. And it was made 20 years after the original. So mm-hmm. I think that's all very interesting. And for a conversation for another time. Fair enough. Um, yeah, well, my, my kind of summary of it all is that, I, you know, it's, it's a four-hour movie almost. And... Um, you know, ninety nine percent of it still works. There's there's a couple of parts that maybe drag here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a, a structure that you may not be familiar with today. Um, you know, there's a couple of moments where the special effects kind of show around the edges, just because we're so much more sophisticated in what we can make today. Um, but that said, you know, I watched it. Uh, I, I've seen it several times. Um, you know, I saw it probably first when I was ten or twelve, yeah. and. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it several times since then. Um, I watched it for this review with my wife, and she loved it. It was the first time she had ever seen it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful... It's a wonderful film. It's a wonderful period film. It's huge. It's epic. It um, it has wonderful characters. It's It's got everything you would want. It's got romance and revenge and you know, sea battles and chariot races and... And possibly a gay subtext, depending on who you believe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I would say it's it's well worth your time. You know, make sure that when you do sit down to watch it, that you have a full four-hour block <laughs> that you can sit and do this. You know, take the intermission, go make a sandwich or something, you know, uh, but make sure that you can commit to the movie. That's my only caveat in, in suggesting that you should watch it because it's it's definitely worth it to get the full experience. And watch it on the biggest screen that you can. It's going Absolutely. to be it's going to be better the bigger you make it. It was I mean it was one of the, the first films shot in, in you know huge uh, uh, cinema rama or uh, I don't think it was actually cinema rama, but one of those huge yeah, it was film shot on, formats. Yeah, it was shot on Technicolor and also, yeah, that huge film format that you're talking um, about. You know, and, and uh, that was kind of part of the point of it, is this was taking back 
movies from television. You know, it was, it was a huge experience. It was something that you couldn't get on TV. It was something that you had to go to the theater to see. You had to see it as big and as loud and as majestic as possible. And it really is a movie that is big and huge and majestic. And, uh, you know, the sets, the costumes, the actors, you know, it's, it is definitely, you know, a triple A title mm-hmm. from 1959. So what, I definitely I, recommend it. And to, and to completely piggyback on what you just said, after we watched this, we got, I don't know how this happened, but we watched Ben-Hur, and then um, the next, the following three nights, we watched uh, the extended editions of The Lord of the Rings, and it's really amazing how well they stand up back-to-back. Hmm. You know, you don't feel like, I mean, obviously what Peter Jackson did was a very kind of different beast, but at the same time, you do have the same kind of sprawling, it's epic storytelling going on. Kind of the modern-day equivalent of, of yeah. what they did. I would say this is, I mean, I wouldn't compare this to Return of the King, because Return of the King is ginormous, but this definitely would hold up against, like, Fellowship or even Two Towers at certain points, where you go, these are huge crowds. Mm-hmm. But in Peter Jackson's world, they're all digital, and in uh, William Wyler's world, they are actually people in that street. They, there's no way to fake that in 1959. Exactly. So, definitely well worth your time, uh, you know, uh, Please watch it and uh, post on our website. Uh, we'd yes. love to hear your reactions to this movie because um, we think it's it's a movie that is an exciting way to get into the top 100 American films of all time. And because it's, it's a fantastic film, it's it's well worth being on the list. And it may be something that you haven't seen. And we would love to hear what you think about it. Absolutely. And there's so many, with as many characters that are there, they represent so many different walks of life, so many different um, political and religious uh, beliefs and worldviews that really... There's something for everyone. It's something for everybody, and and when you get into conversations, there's so many places you can take it. You can really get into really anything. It's really, really remarkable. Yeah, I I would say it's definitely not a movie just for Christians. It's No, not uh, at all. it, It may... The main character, I think follows a Christian worldview by the end, but at the same time, I think that there are so many ways of looking at this film and discussing this film. Uh, you know, don't be turned off by that if, if that's your thing. You know, watch yeah. the movie and draw your own conclusions, is what I would say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, William Wyler even said in taking the job, because he himself, as I said, was uh, he was Jewish, but he said, you know, I want to I want to make this movie, and I want to make this movie for everybody. I want to make this be a movie that anybody could watch and enjoy. And as I watch it, I would have a hard time imagining it the person who honestly would just be completely turned off by the movie. Exactly. So, so that's been her. Uh, yes. Th- thank you for joining us today. And uh, next time we are doing number 99 on the AFI's top 100 films. Toy Story. Yes. So a much different, uh, <laughs> really, really completely different concept from what we did today. Uh-huh. Like a, a completely practical movie to one created entirely in the computer. So yeah, and we're going from one place of like, have people seen Ben Hur? To like, do you know anybody who hasn't seen Toy Story at this point? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to joining with you next time and talking yeah. about Toy Story. See you then. Thanks. You've been listening to Movies You Should Love. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. 